0: Power with inside people can seem like the same thing as we're all in this together, and it's really not what I think we should be talking about is be collaborative with power so that I still stay in my responsibilities, but I can be more collaborative and less like you know the, the leader knows everything, and the employee knows nothing, and the leader tells the employee what to do, but we can talk about their perspective, my perspective, we can collaborate with each other and still have me holding the responsibilities of my role.
1: Would you call yourself a powerful person? And do you trust yourself with power? Does owning your power feel a little bit like holding a hot potato? And I'm curious, what influences your ability to feel powerful? Is it titles, money, time, accomplishments, accolades, access, or how you feel in your body or how your body looks. Maybe the idea of your being powerful feels uncomfortable or elusive, or maybe it's just not something you think about much at all for fear of thinking about power or being powerful feels like a negative thing. You're not alone if that's the case, because so many of us Especially those who don't hold dominant culture identities have learned to fear power and see it as the enemy. And this causes us to reject our personal power, even in the face of power over experiences from bosses, educators, family, community, and culture. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. How we language and talk about power often connects with our beliefs about power. The many ways we learn about power, sadly, are often by having it taken away from us, seeing it taken away from others, or seeing people go to great lengths to take and keep power no matter the cost. These things understandably influence our understanding of power for the worse. Now, we've benefited from many pioneering scholars and social justice leaders who deeply embrace their personal power in the face of systemic abuses of power. Shawnee Organ and Rosalind Gill re- reference many of these leaders in depth and detail in their book, Confidence Culture. These leaders saw personal power as a birthright and generative, not as something to fear. Now, this lens on power is not something I was taught, let alone the many I have supported over the last two decades. Many clients came to me to, quote, reclaim their power and find their power and confidence and cure their fears and their doubts. They saw their struggles as a personal and moral failure, and if their struggles persisted, and healing felt elusive, this reflected on their lack of worthiness and reinforced their belief that they were powerless. Now, I know their power and confidence were never lost, but just buried under many hard experiences and incessant messaging from a flawed trillion-dollar self-help industry and a burdened culture holding racism, sexism, materialism, and individualism. Organ and Gill write in their amazing book that confidence culture is powerful and seductive, and we do not exist outside of this. As feminist scholars of media, culture, and psychological studies, we're profoundly aware that power does not just exist, quote, out there in the world. It also exists in here. It shapes our ways of relating to ourselves and others. Inspired by Black feminist and post-colonial scholars, from Franz Fannin to Said to Bell Hooks and to Octavia Butler, we recognize the psychic force of diverse forms of oppression, the terrifying ways in which subordination and social injustice operate, not simply through dispossession and discrimination, but by taking up residence in our heads and our hearts. Oof. And... I also value what Valerie Coir writes in her beautiful book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love about power in the face of overwhelming adversity. It lands far different from the often well-intentioned but lacking empowerment messages we see proliferated throughout personal and professional development spaces. And she writes, any act to change the world around us begins with us. It starts with the sense of agency, a sense that we can affect change. The Latin root of the word power means to be able. When we feel helpless in the face of injustice, it is easy to give in to the idea that this is just the way things are because it's the way things have always been. Then someone comes along and sparks our imagination, maybe a prophetic voice from the past or a friend on the phone we begin to see that the norms and the institutions that order this world are not inevitable, but constructed, and therefore can be changed. And the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire calls this internal shift critical consciousness, that moment we tap into our power to change the world around us, it feels like waking up. When we connect with our personal power, it sure does indeed feel like waking up, It feels liberating to no longer live from a burdened sense that we're flawed for doubting ourselves or that we're in deficit because we feel shut down and stuck in our pain and the pain around us. Yeah, it sure does indeed feel like waking up. And today's guest's lens on power is contrary to what many of us have been taught about power. She believes one aspect of power, personal power, is not something to gain, but something you already have and is intrinsic to who you are. And she sees power itself as neutral. I know, mind explosion. Dr. Cedar Barstow has long devoted to helping people own and use their power wisely and well. Her book, Right Use of Power, The Heart of Ethics and Engaging Courses are offered at www.rightuseofpower.org. In addition to being the founder of Right Use of Power Institute, Cedar's background includes being a Hakomi Mindful Somatic Therapy Trainer, therapist, and ethics consultant. She lives with her husband in Boulder, Colorado. Listen for Cedar's definition of ethics and how it connects to her lens on power, and pay attention to when Cedar shared that she believes power is neutral, and also offer this same stance of neutrality towards hierarchies which took me a minute to get my brain around. And notice when Cedar talks about the different types of power from personal, role, status, collective, and institutional power. All right, y'all, get your notebooks ready, fasten your seatbelts, and please welcome Dr. Cedar Barstow to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Dr. Barstow, thank you for coming on the show.
0: You're so welcome.
1: Uh, Well, I want to jump back in. We're going to talk about power and you know, power is a—it's it, part of your body of work, and it's a loaded word. And I think it's particularly a loaded word, depending on the identities you hold, and your lived experience. Um, and you started off on this journey about, about power, writing a book more initially focused in the kind of clinical mental health space as a, a different way to view ethics, which is part of as a, as a trained psychotherapist. It's part of our. Ethical Training, and you offered an alternative a little over a decade, two decades ago. And I'm curious, you know, originally you were just focusing on psychotherapists with this book. What led to your shift in making this work, you know, what you called right use of power? What led to you making this shift more open to everyone and not just therapists? So actually, Rebecca,
0: it was 35 years ago.
1: No way! That I started oh my goodness! This.
0: I didn't write the book until ten years after I had begun doing trainings of this um, this approach to ethics in a, in a very embodied way. And I was the the administrative director of the Hakomi Institute at that time, and I really began seeing that yes, we had a code of ethics, yes, we had a grievance process, but that didn't mean that people were not making mistakes and causing harm. And exactly. In fact, it tended to be more scary for people because you sign a code of ethics and say, I understand this, I will not do any of these things. But that, that doesn't include the life fact that relationships are messy. And no matter how much we want to do good, we make mistakes. And just the simple fact that intentions are often different from the impact, and so it's not a matter of being good, meaning you never make a mistake. If you have that idea, or never cause any harm, if you have that idea, then you're not going to be able to notice when harm has been caused, and so it'll just it'll just keep repeating or escalating. Gosh what is it that we need as part of our ethics training to actually be able to understand ourselves, our shadow cells, be able to track for when harm has happened uh, and take responsibility for reaching out and trying to repair it. And so that's how the whole course got started. I wanted to create a class that would help people understand from the inside out, not just the rule side about ethics. And experiential, make it interesting, engaging. That's when the idea that ethics is actually the right use of power came in. And once I understood that, oh my gosh, worlds opened. So ethics was just not this narrow little, little lane, but actually was a living, exciting, creative, um, lifelong learning about your impact as a person who has and uses power, as all leaders and therapists do. Power is everywhere. And the foundation of this um, idea of Ethics as power is actually the power difference, the power differential. And that's true whether you're a therapist or a CEO or a coach or anybody in, in a leadership role. There is a difference between the amount and kind of power you have compared mm-hmm. to your client or your employee. So working with therapists, and then I got a consulting job with a spiritual group that was having lots of ethical misbehaviors and really needed some help to sort that out. And so I found that I could work with the whole community and the leaders of that spiritual community and offer them some very valuable help that helped Shift things around, but it's also at the time when I realized sometimes we think ethics and use of right use of power should just be f- taught to the leaders. But no, I began to see that some of the problems in the spiritual group were because the students did not understand the nature, how power works, and what kinds of things were unethical that their mm. teachers might have been doing but if they were able to understand oh this is unethical they could have protected themselves more
1: mm. you know power and ethics is these are these are words that get used broadly but mm. often without real clarity so i sure. i want to start off before we go further in our conversation just you defining Power, Mm -hmm. defining ethics, and how that leads to right use of power.
0: Yeah. When my friend Amina had said, Cedar, you know, ethics is right use of power, I went to the dictionary and I said, hey, what's power? And the dictionary says, simply, power is the ability to have an effect or to have influence. Well, that's simple. And I noticed that it's neutral. Neutral. As you said earlier, power has this dramatic um, drum roll, please, response where it looks like this uh, force, and we know so much about the dynamics of power from seeing it abused and misused in the paper, in the news, uh, in, in companies we remember harm more easily than we remember a leader who was really mm. wonderful, ethical, empowering. Yeah. We tend not to remember that because harm sticks like Velcro. You know,
1: absolutely.
0: The definition of power being that neutral was such a good starting point because it's how we use it that causes good or harm. And Gosh. there was this. This I noticed that this definition had two levels. One is power is an ability and it's influence. So -hmm. the ability is the capacity to use power. We all have power. Even babies have power, personal power, when they cry or they laugh. But then there's influence. And influence is the how of our ability.
1: It really shifts. uh, Because it was interesting, I was... Interviewing a leader named Kelly Deals, who was really uh, appreciative of your work, and talked about how we love empowerment, but we don't like the word power. Yes, particularly those who identify as female. And so this that neutral component of it it's it's been a game changer, especially in so many conversations that I have yes. with those that I work with, and it, it's a little bit of a mind mel initially too, because there's this sense that we want to push against power, but we also we have power. And so before we move on to getting into the different types of power, how do you define ethics? Well, I'm going to read something
0: from the book, if you don't mind. Absolutely not. Because that's the, the simplest. The dictionary definition says that ethics is the study of what is right and wrong and of duty and moral obligation. But For my purposes and our purposes with Right Use of Power Institute, ethics is a set of values, attitudes, and skills intended to have benevolent effects when applied through professional behavioral guidelines, decision-making processes, and the practice of compassion.
1: Mm.
0: So you can see there's, there's a a felt sense difference between those two kinds of definitions.
1: And what I like about it too is it really is something that we can make our own. Oh, yes. You know, in the sense that there isn't this one way Mm -hmm. to be ethical, this one way. And I think sometimes, especially... You know, in the clinical space, there's Mm -hmm. sometimes a lot of a lot of polarities and binaries in this. And but there's still this sense of having to be really clear on values Mm -hmm. and that the role of compassion and the role of benevolence Mm -hmm. and where of impact. And so the integration of power and ethics is what your body of work is about. That is that really that's the right use of power, correct?
0: Yes, I would make another definition of right use of power as I've written it and cultivated the words, the use of personal and role, power, and influence to prevent, reduce, resolve, and repair harm. In addition, Mm. to balance and integrate strength with heart, improve relationships and situations, and promote well-being and the common good.
1: And that really goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's not about never doing harm. If we're in relationships, we're going to have an impact that isn't always helpful to somebody. It's just regardless of our intent. And it's this beautiful framework to not get out of a place of of scarcity or avoiding relationships or going to a place of shame or blame. Mm-hmm. But it's like it just kicks into, OK, harm was done. Okay. So then here's how do we respond? Yes. How do we repair? How do we move towards? It's not about a turf. Um, and it, it it's it takes work and that takes a, a really big collective commitment. Um, but this framework, I just feel like my whole nervous system kind of downshifts when I start to look at power and ethics and right use of power this way, because it really does move us away from perfectionism. That's right. And just you know, all of the toxic positivity stuff. And so it, it's really exciting. And I I think one thing that I can't stop talking about, whether I'm speaking, whether I'm running a group, whether I'm working with clients, is how you broke down different types of power in your right use of power methodology. And I'm just gonna say them first and I want to have a little bit of a conversation about them, but you talk about personal power and then and, and what Well, let me just read them. Personal power, role power, status power, collective power, and systemic power. And you added collective and systemic power later on in your work. So Originally, it was just personal role and status power. And what I love about personal power is how you lay it out. We all have it. You touched on that at the beginning. It can get buried. We can believe the lies that are told that we are powerless. But when you kind of say you have it, and it's you have It's in you. You might need to uncover it or reclaim it. But your personal power. Tell me a little bit about how, when you are working, especially with organizations, that they respond that everybody has personal power. Tell to me a little about the impact that that has and what you've seen over the years when people really understand the role of personal power.
0: I want to just insert one other thing about the definition. It's the ability to have an effect or to have influence. That implies relationship. Yes. So one of the things about right use of power is that it's actually about being in right relationship. There's a way that right use of power sets up an unfortunate binary wrong and right. But really what it's about is learning how to be in right relationship with all the types of power that you just named, in yourself and with others, both.
1: Yes, that's what I was just going to say. Is that to me, it, it's my how my relationship with myself, my inner system, how I, my story, how I lead, that is inextricably connected to my role, power, status, power, and collective and systemic power. Mm-hmm. Like if I am not in right relationship or even aware of that personal power, it's hard to engage. Right. In a positive way, in an impactful way that wouldn't do harm. Mm-hmm. And so that that's such a constant, you know, in the IFS world, we kind of talk about the Y-O-U-turn, you know, and then the return, you know, so it's like very whiplashy at times, U-turn, return in that dance. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that we all, and I believe that I read a lot of leadership books and I read this one book and he talked about leadership is you walk in a room and you have an impact. you Things shift just by your presence. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll take that. Yep. So I think there's some similarities there. So how do you define role power? So let me expand a little
0: more on personal power. In the beginning, I just said, oh, we all have personal power. And then I focused on role power. But then as the years have gone by, I've seen that we have to focus a lot more on personal power because that's our inner foundation. That's where our values come from. That's where our spirituality comes from. That's where, uh, where our personality comes from. I mean, that's, that's so big. And that's where the trauma is held. If we've, had, mm. if we've experienced, and all of us have, various amounts of, of traumatic harm, that's where yeah. that has to be healed in the personal power space. Role power is often thought of as positional power um, but I like the word role power it's kind of related to your your job it's something that is earned awarded elected or assigned role power automatically is accompanies any position of authority
1: so you know from the family you know I'm a parent
0: yes Right. <laughs> That's a position so. of authority, isn't it? You won't get paid for it like you do when no. you have a, a a job that you've been hired for. But only way you get paid in love. And-,
1: and then there's, I think, the other hats that we wear that sometimes, and I think this comes with varying degrees of privilege too, which maybe is more related to status yes. power also. But we sometimes, if we're not really owning our role power, or we're misusing it. Tell me a little bit about what you see when you teach role power. What are some of the common struggles that come up around role power? Mm-hmm. And yeah, what comes up when you talk about that when you're with organizations?
0: I love your questions, Rebecca.
1: <laughs> so I use
0: this uh, very simple, symbolic uh, item, which is a scarf. When anybody comes to a workshop, I ask them to bring a scarf, even an online workshop. I say, so here you are, feel your personal power. And now imagine yourself in any role power that you have. Like when you're a teacher, when you're a therapist, when you're a CEO, when you're a committee chair, when you're a coach, imagine that when you go in, like I think of it in my therapist chair, I go in and I sit down and I meet my client. And before I enter the door, I imaginarily put on a scarf. And the scarf is the symbol, often I actually do have a scarf, but it becomes the symbol of role power being an add-on power, not mm-hmm. something that is my identity. My identity is, is my personal power. so. My scarf is embedded with the responsibilities that go with my job as a therapist. Responsibilities like providing a safe environment. Responsibilities like being the guardian of time. Responsibilities of tracking for if my client is um, talking about suicide or some serious issue that I need to provide outside help for. One of my responsibilities is to track their progress and Mm -hmm. assess how things are going. These are all the responsibilities that go with my role. And I need at the end of my session to take my scarf off or else I'm starting to carry that with me and it becomes more and more my identity. And that's a false identity.
1: It's so interesting because over the years I've seen and worked with so many leaders who are like, I am so successful at work. But at home, I mean they're struggling, their marriages are falling apart, their relationship with their kids, their own well-being. And I think a lot of it has to do is they're trying to carry the role they have mm-hmm. outside of the home mm-hmm. and lead in the same way. They don't take the figurative scarf off. And there's also something I've found with role power, particularly in any kind of helping profession, or just humaning in general, is having a reverence for that role that we have. There's that sense of that add on power that you talked about. And if we lose a sense of, wow, there's some trust here, there's some vulnerability because of the role that I have, or just having a reverence for that differential, Mm -hmm. there's sense it for me, it helps keep me connected to humility, um, and staying curious, instead of taking it for granted. And that's why I think so much of the, you know, where harm can be done. So that's something I've really taken away mm-hmm. as I start to delineate these different roles and learn about these roles. So
0: many people in the helping professions and maybe even, I don't like or make generalizations, but maybe even women in particular say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want power over somebody. I don't want this. Mm-hmm. And And they try to flatten it so that yep. they won't. Be having this image of power over. I had a, a in one of my classes, uh, people were sitting, partnered with each other, and we were doing an exercise where they embodied through a mindfulness exercise, one of them being in, we call it up power, not because it's mm-hmm. better, but just talking about the power difference, and the client being in down power. Down power not being no ma- no power, up power not being all power. But yes. Uh, the person who is the client in this practice exercise, the first thing they did was to take off their scarf and hand it to their client. I checked with the client and I said, what was that like? And she said, it was scary. I felt like all of a sudden I was on my own to handle my my problems. And I was supposed to know everything. And I was going to this uh, therapist because I, I felt broken. I didn't know everything. I needed help. I felt abandoned.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think that could happen in a family situation when Absolutely. parents right, parentify their kids or any kind of organization where someone who's supposed to be leading kind of re- release the steps back. Oh, we're all in it together. Yeah. <laughs> but really the folks need to you know but there are some because there are different power differentials and different access different authorities if we give that up because we're so afraid of power over yeah and there's a real difference between power over and power with yes yeah
0: power with can also be misconstrued as we all mm-hmm. have the same amount of power ooh
1: you know yeah can you say more power
0: with inside people can seem like the same thing as we're all in this together. And it's really not. We are all (laughs) in this together, but if I'm power with, what I think they we should be talking about is be collaborative with power. So that I still stay in my responsibilities, but I can be more collaborative and less like, you know, the The leader knows everything and the employee knows nothing and the leader tells the employee what to do. But we can Mm -hmm. talk about their perspective, my perspective. We can collaborate with each other and still have me holding the responsibilities of my role.
1: And it really isn't a hierarchical approach with collaboration, right? There is this leveling of collaboration with ownership of respons- roles and responsibilities. Am I hearing that correctly?
0: I still think that's a
1: hierarchy. But again, I don't think
0: of hierarchy as the enemy. Hierarchy okay. is neutral. It's how we use it. We can oh, use yes. hierarchy to be power over, manipulative, all the stuff we see in the news and that causes abuse. Or we can see hierarchy as a functional tool that we can use in a collaborative way.
1: I'm sitting with this and my brain is exploding a little bit. I don't disagree. And I'm just thinking, though, there's a part of me going, that's fantasy land. Is it? (laughs) You know, well, I mean, in theory, that sounds great, right? That if we, but it would require everybody to really be on the same page, really with their personal and role power correct and, and we haven't even touched on status power yet but yeah because I, I i'm wondering yeah I, I i'm wondering for me i guess i have to, i i'm just have to think this through more, but i'm wondering out loud maybe what i've done with power in the past i've done with the hierarchy but i think there's parts of me still seeing collaborative and hierarchy is different and you're saying they could still be the same yeah with the right use of power yeah again Maybe And I'm not a cynical person, but I'm a realist. I'm a realist. And I'm like, can we get there? Can we get there, Cedar?
0: (laughs) We absolutely get there in therapy. That's where I see it the most. Sure. So 30, 40 years ago, the therapist, the psychologist, their job was to figure out what was wrong with you and tell you you what to do about it. Your personal information was not particularly valued. Right, right in IFS, in Hakomi, in all of these new psychotherapeutic methodologies, we absolutely depend on the information. Our clients are experts on their own experience. We're experts on the healing method that we bring to their experience. I call that collaborative because I'm not giving up my role power I'm not saying I won't take charge here. My method I'm going to use to help take charge so that the, my client can you know, fall apart, knowing that I'm holding the container. That's part of my role responsibility, which is a hierarchical responsibility.
1: No question. And in, in, a, in a therapist or coach-client dynamic in that smaller ecosystem, I co-sign. I, I'm, I'm tracking that. I'm just thinking, well, let, let's do this. Let's talk about status power. And then I want to kind of circle back to this hierarchical collaborative okay. conundrum that I now have. Yeah. How do you define status power? Status power is additional power that is
0: culturally conferred. It often goes unrecognized by those who hold it. And since we have multiple social locations, our status power combinations are unique. It depends on cultural values and may change from culture to culture. Examples of status power include race, age, ability, gender, socioeconomic status, for example. So enter status power and you have instant complexity.
1: And instant reasons why folks have a bad and harmful, view power as harmful or see it as something that they want to, you know, reject, work against, or deny.
0: And further, madness power is so messed up and embedded in systemic power. Absolutely. Which causes huge amounts of harm and continues to, and continues to, and continues to. So that's kind of the next level of where right use of power is trying to work is in status collective and systemic power, which adds so much more to the equation. You know,
1: There have been very few places that I feel like have gotten close to maybe a hierarchical place where personal role and status power were used well and i feel like just again because of the identities i hold like status power off, you know like you said in the definition i'm not always aware of it right i get to move in and out of spaces because of the identities i hold without thinking much about it and so how i even use my personal power because of my status power can impact how i use my role power and so i just thinking that through and thinking through in a lot of these organizations that are clinging to a hierarchical model that really I think conflates role and status power while diminishing personal power. Yes. As kind of just, just the way it is. Yes, that's and all that's how I we-
0: agree. That's most often what happens. What I think that's one of the the DEI world is trying to work on shifting that around, and with more and less success. I like yeah. the fact that that I now hear in the DEI world adding in belonging, DEIB. That makes sense to me, and I can also understand because of the complexities of adding systems and status in, it makes the hierarchy even more difficult and challenging to manage in the way I was talking about as collaborative.
1: Leading is hard. Leading is often controversial as you navigate staying aligned with your values, your mission and boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities when you need to feel rock solid about your plan and action. Finding a coach who understands the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future feels so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to help keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make some hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you, where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. So when did you decide and why to decide to add collective and systemic power to these different types of power that you identify?
0: And that comes from my My now successor, Dr. Amanda Aguilera, Uh, who uh, took this and said, oh, yes, and we need to evolve it now after 35 years. We need to evolve it in the direction of working with status power more and those complexities, adding in collective power and systemic power, all of which are neutral they're actually neutral, all of these. It's how we use them. Well, status power, Yes, it, it is neutral, and how we use it ends up with racism, sexism, every is there is. And right. that's the bad use of it. I wish there weren't even such a thing as status power. But some of the status power, like the status that you get if you like I, I will always have status in Right Use of Power Institute, even though I'm not the executive director anymore. Amanda is. So she now has up power to me and I have up status to her. And it's so interesting for us to learn how to weave those together because I need to learn how to use my up status with up status power in a way that continues to honor her role power, and not
1: keep pulling it back toward me, or you know what I mean? Totally. No, I'm tracking. You're in an interesting power shift as you retire and move into a different role. And I think that language is curious. But I, here's what I'm keep I'm I'm stuck on a little bit um, is especially with these different with status power in particular and the neutrality. And I, I, th- I think you're kind of. You're not saying status is 100% neutral, but if I am holding identities that don't carry status power, I'm I'm stuck on how power can remain neutral. Totally, does that make sense? Where I, where I'm stuck on It's like I get the personal power piece, but with the intersection of status power with other with role power, that's so sticky,
0: and that's where I think. Right, this this comes from Amanda, actually. I'm going to honor her with that. She is talking about how if you have culturally assigned lower power, like in the States, being a person of color or a woman, then you need to keep developing and put way more energy, or you do, into developing your personal power. Whereas mm-hmm. a man or as a white person, you tend to only fairly rest on your privilege and not develop your personal power so much. So you get over-identified over-identi- with your status privileges and think that's you. Yeah, this, this principle sounds very, very simple, <laughs> and it can be. <laughs> so freeing, and it can be so confusing. I want to say about the conversation about status power that I am still in big learning mode, and I suspect <laughs> I said some things in it that, that might have caused some ouches, and so I just want to say I'm really learning, and I'm sorry for any ouches, particularly people of color or- I make mistakes all the time, and I'm just doing my best to learn.
1: Okay, we could go down a long rabbit hole with this, but I want to move on to a few things that you talk about in your approaches, because my listeners love tools and frameworks that help them navigate leadership. So I want to make sure, and again, this hopefully this conversation is just going to be an amuse bouche for folks to dive deeper into your book, into your work. But I want to start off with the 150% principle, which I love. And you, you talk about it as when there's a difference in power. And, and this maybe is a good segue from what we're talking about. The responsibility is not equal. Both parties are 100% responsible for the relationships health. But the person in the up power role is 150% responsible for tracking problems and resolving and repairing them. And so I'm curious, how does this approach help leaders navigate breaches of trust, especially when there's differences in role and status power. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Okay, so the 150% principle, and I believe that applies to status power, up status power, as well as role power. So often, and, and I've been tracking grievance processes for years and years and years, so many of them end up escalating into a grievance process where it's a mistake or an intention that was different than impact that had the person known the 150% principle, could have said, oh my gosh, it looks like something happened here that I want to talk about, and could have addressed it and worked it out right then. But instead, they said, Oh, well, you never told me you were hurt. And they weren't, they weren't taking the pos- responsibility for tracking when something was off. And they weren't taking more responsibility for uh, a project getting completed on time. They weren't taking their responsibilities seriously enough. So this just seems to be helpful. And you said it was helpful to you. Now, it can also feel like a huge burden, right? I have to take 50% more responsibility. How am I going to take care of myself? I'm already exhausted and stressed. It's actually mm-hmm. meant not to be a burden, but just a, a deeper awareness of what is involved in saying yes to the responsibilities that go with your role. one of the responsibilities is also taking good care of yourself, because we are much more likely to cause harm when we aren't taking good care of ourselves. Self-care is an ethical imperative, really, not just a, wouldn't it be nice?
1: But it's also a a role imperative that often we're not taught and it's easy especially in a lot of the personal and professional development spaces when someone's struggling or if a leader feels a little blindsided by feedback or an experience we just default to blame oh well you never let me know um, or you're just you just have a bad mindset you know or something like that that just diminishes the courage for someone finally speaking up because there's a lot at stake with role and often if it's commingled with status power. So I, I really appreciate that and I think it's a really powerful thing to teach uh, when we're you know training and raising up leaders and even how we see ourselves of responsibility and the ethics of our power that's saying, I got to take a little bit more ownership of here because of the different role powers that I hold.
0: Yeah, and if I have status power privileges, then I need to be 150% responsible mm-hmm. for how I use those and trying to use those for good right. instead of to uh, further the status quo.
1: Yeah. And if we're just focusing on self protection, right, mm-hmm. then we can't, we're, we're not going to be able to return to no. the relationship. So, no. another favorite tool of mine that you write about is the spiral down process. Um, This one's probably harder to do without visuals, (laughs) but I'm curious how you would envision leaders using that in practice, especially for those in up power and status power roles. As I was designing
0: this, I wanted to be really useful in a positive way, like power positive way. I began thinking about, I like fours, I like the four directions, I like fours. And I thought are there maybe there are four dimensions of power that each has its own skills and awarenesses and inner work what can be useful to leaders in a difficult spot. Here's a challenging situation. What happens if you look at it from each of these four dimensions? One of them is the dimension of being informed and present. In a situation that's difficult, a leader might say, okay, is there information I'm missing here? Am I really present to what's going on? The second would be to be compassionate and aware, that dimension. And that's looking at the difficulty and saying, is there a way that I'm I'm just stuck in my own anger or my own opinion here? and need to be more aware about what my part in this is, and more curious and compassionate. And then the third dimension is be connected and accountable. And this focuses on the relationship. What's going on in this difficult relationship? Have I gotten disconnected? Is that causing a problem? Is there some other accountability that I need to understand and take on. And then the fourth is be skillful and proactive. And this relates Hmm. to the skills that are required to use power wisely and well, like the skill of being able to give and receive feedback well, for example. Hmm. And that might involve connecting with somebody else, a colleague or advisor and how can I be proactive in the future based on what I learned from this experience?
1: What I love about this framework and these quadrants that you created, it just is a real, like as soon as maybe there is some sort of conflict, some sort of breach, it, it's like this really cool U-turn and really specific questions to kind of look. And then, you know, and it, it's a call to where do I need support? Where 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 are things that I'm missing and I'm not seeing, and if that is a habit with these kind of questions and these different types of quadrants, especially focused on power, it really does. And it, and it can for me, it's led to further inquiry and clarification really? where the breach happened. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, hey, I, I'm wondering more. Was this was this a miss? If I'm missing something, and even that is a place where repair happens because I'm when by being rumbling with that um, and it helps me not to stay in assuming role. Like I want to just have my experience. It really gets me into curiosity. It gets, moves me towards clarity and compassion. So I really love this. And you, you write more about that in your book. So I encourage listeners to get the book and to read it (laughs) Uh, because there's a lot more of these little kind of practices in here that help us untangle from the burdens of the burdens that we carry that have impacted how we see power. Mm -hmm. We also, with Right Use of
0: Power Institute, have trainings in this that are very engaging and alive and growing and and valuable.
1: And having just took the foundational one earlier this year, I co-sign how valuable it is and I look forward to taking more. I want to wrap up with one question though, just for you, and I'm curious how your understanding of a successful relationship, especially with power in mind, has changed since you were younger.
0: You know, I think when I was younger, I thought that a successful relationship was a conflict-free one. Really.
1: (laughs) No, I'm like, yep, we were sold that in the movies. (laughs) Yeah, we were.
0: And now I understand the successful relationship is one in which you can have courageous conflict, conversations, work things out, and in working things out, the relationship goes deeper and deeper and has the option of going deeper and deeper. Sometimes courageous conversations end up with a a conscious saying goodbye, but better Mm. to do it consciously than have it come out of a blow-up that never gets attention.
1: A place of reactivity yeah, wow, that's powerful. Um, one of the traditions I have on the show now is asking some fun quick fire questions. Uh-oh. Are you ready for Rest. us to move into these? Okay. So what are you reading right now? Well, the best book I have
0: ever read. Oh I my think. goodness. It's on the top of the New York Times bestseller list and it's called Covenant with Water Ooh. by Alexander DeGuisa. De Oh, boy, I recommend that. It's about society in India, three generations. It's just, it absolutely, it captivates you.
1: Oh, gosh, I'll add it to the list. What is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Just finished with the Transatlantic.
0: Seven-segment series, really beautifully done. And also, I just saw... The new movie, Hello, God, It's Me, Margaret. Oh, my gosh. By Judy Bloom, Legend. It's beautifully done and really uh, timely.
1: Oh, and I often ask people about 80s pop culture, but from when you were a teenager, what would you say is kind of your favorite bit of pop culture for when you were growing up movies or shows or music?
0: Peter, Paul, and Mary Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell. Oh and uh, musicals. I memorized all of the songs and the classic musicals.
1: Awesome. <laughs> what is your mantra right now?
0: Power with heart.
1: Oldie but goodie. Steadfast mm-hmm. for you. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold?
0: I think maybe I have an opinion that people who are very mm, different can actually find similarities and connections with each other if if they want to and have some skill.
1: Uh, you also taught me too that, you know, even saying that power is neutral is often an unpopular stance oh, to take too, oh, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and well, hierarchy is well, neutral. I, I'm still working, on <laughs> still working on that one, still working on that one. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Well, you've
0: inspired me in this conversation. And Amanda inspires me. My dad and my mother. Lots. And Right Use of Power Institute actually has an award every a power positive award where we pick an organization and a person and name the, give them a the power positive award with a plaque and and you know if I could offer one suggestion. We so often don't let the people who have affected us positively know. And so they never find out. So anybody out there listening, think of somebody that you want to appreciate for how they use their power and
1: let them know. It'll make Mm -hmm. their day. It will. That's a powerful call to action. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Rastell. Where can people find... You and the Right Use of Power work if they want to get involved and learn more.
0: www.rightuseofpower.org.
1: Awesome. And we'll make sure to put all kinds of links uh, related to the show in the show notes. I know that we only did a tip of the iceberg with our conversation. And I am honored that you took this time to talk with me. I've been so impacted and moved by your work, it's been very timely and excited. It's just an honor to share it with other people, especially now through this incredible conversation. So thank you for joining me today.
0: Well, this was so exciting and I had so much fun.
1: Okay, before you go, I wanna ensure you take away some valuable insights from this important conversation with Dr. Cedar Barstow. Now I know for me, thinking about power as neutral and ethics as a right use of power in right relationship with others has been a game changer for me to changing how I think about and talk about power. And Cedar goes deeper into this in her book, Right Use of Power and in her training institute, which I recommend highly. Dr. Barstow also shared that ethics is not just this like narrow linear thing to focus on, but a living, exciting, dynamic, lifelong learning practice about our impact on how we lead in all areas of our lives. So I'm curious what influences your definition of power and what shifted for you as you listened to this conversation on power and how can you cultivate more power with in the spaces you live and lead? When we develop an ethic of right use of power in the spaces that we lead and live, we develop spaces that can have hard conversations while valuing all people and their experiences. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode positively impacted you, I would be honored. If you left a rating and a review and shared it with a few people you think may be interested and benefit from it, all of these actions help more people hear about the show. And I am so grateful. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And I am so grateful to the incredible team at Yellow House Media who helped me produce this episode.